It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the motivation of, of, of my career, I guess, is I just can't believe how this much strangeness could lay that close to the surface and the enterprise of human history be conducted for 10,000 years with people running around trying to do weird things, writing polyphonic music and, you know, the Rudolphine Court and Hieronymus Bosch and all this stuff, and right under the surface, uh, just a, a Niagara of peculiarity and strangeness that, that makes no sense to me when I put on the hat of the biologist. Why should a, an advanced animal have this curious relationship to an invisible river of imagery running collectively through the brains of all and each. And the beauty of it, as in Blake's word, the futurity of it, the fact that in the glistening of the flowing waters of the unconscious, you glimpse not only the square-topped towers of Ilium and the ruins of Carthage and Petra and all that, but you also see the intimations of some kind of magnificent future. The whole circumstance of being alive and being a self-reflecting, thinking human being is just too peculiar for words. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today, another archive edition. We're presenting part two of a lecture series given at Esalen in 1992 by the one and only Terence McKenna, ethnobotanist, mystic, psychedelic adventurer. The talk is entitled Politics and Ethos, but as you'll soon hear, McKenna quickly forsakes those topics for a more robust discussion that includes shamanism, synesthesia, paranormal phenomena, climatology, astronomy, Renaissance, humanism, and telepathy. All of this subsumed, of course, within the discourse of the psychedelic experience. I think it's good fun to listen to McKenna's playful explorations with language. Uh, for example, some of his ecstatic phrasings include references to, quote, the heaving notions of the spaghetti of ambiguity, as well as <clears throat> the indwelling entelechy that creates the cohesion of the nexus of actual occasions that is the coordinated prehension of an organic system whatever that means. McKenna often stated that language fails when called upon to convey truly complex meaning, but in truth, I think it's safe to say that he's one of the masters of the form. I spoke last year to McKenna's close friend, author and environmentalist Alan Bediner, and he had this reflection to share. The thing that I was most amazed about is how heartful and compassionate he was, actually. I mean, he has that sort of style of that you might think he wasn't so concerned about others maybe, but he was, and he had a very, I, I remember distinctly, this, this really uh, made a mark on my mind that there was always somebody in the workshop that was, you know, and liked the sound of their voice and wanted to put down the leader. And he was so skilled with how he handled them. Instead of giving them disapproval, he gave them more respect. Instead of uh, giving them a sense that they weren't welcome, he went out of his way to make them feel included. So it was, it was just, it was masterful. And I thought it was, I learned a lot from that, from watching him uh, deal with his detractors. Incredible. It was really interesting. Listening to this, I was struck by, you have within the psychedelic community kind of a dearth of people who can describe or comment upon the, the experience because in a way, it's something that defies words. Mm -hmm. So only the very few mm -hmm. can make a, a, a valuable contribution to it. He was one it. of them. And I'm wondering, what, what was it about him or the angle that he took that made what he said useful, interesting, accessible? Well, he was brilliant. And he had a sense of humor that was just over the top. He was so funny. And he downplayed it and he, in a sort of wry way. But it was hysterical. And, you know, you, you, there's nothing that takes somebody, puts somebody in your control better than like a really amazing sense of humor. Ah. And you want to follow every word. You want to hear him talk endlessly. Did anybody have any particularly strong reaction to last night or feel that we were started off in a wrong direction or the right direction? Or in other words, is there any feedback from all of that last night? 
I heard you a couple of years ago predict the demise of the European Unity Program, and, uh, but you also, in the past, I think, been pretty uh, adamant that NATO was falling apart. The political side of it would, would be philosophical. Uh, so, do you think I was right or wrong? <laughs> that's, that, that's the issue. You've been pretty right. But Soviet Union went your way, so did. Uh, uh -huh. But I did predict that Bush would win re-election <laughs> a long time ago. That was because I didn't figure another Jimmy Carter could possibly be elected president. <laughs> Imagination failed in the clinches. Uh, yeah, well, uh, certainly, given a chance, I'm hot to talk about all that. Um, that's sort of what interests me more these days. I'm beginning to have the feeling that the, the need to stoke the furnace of psychedelic uh, information is a task that is being generalized into the culture. And that I, which is a relief for me because it frees me to discuss my own private megalomaniacal concerns, which are this mathematical effort to model history that will probably be mentioned off and on all day and then dealt with in detail uh, uh, this evening. Strangely enough, the novelty wave or my theory about how history is structured uh, normally leads me into a situation of, of whipping the horse ever faster toward apocalypse and millennium. But uh, very recently, we've entered into a phase where it's more like you should get out your lawn chairs and uh, learn to play solitaire or something, because at least by the by the expectations of the time wave, uh, uh, the next couple of years are going to be incredibly repetitious, mundane, pattern-bound, and ho-hum compared to what we've just been through. We, we really have been through, uh, though from our close perspective it's hard to tell it, probably one of the most profound decades or five or six years in, of the 20th century. I mean, the whole slow, catastrophic collapse of Marxism and what it's meant for Islam and capitalism, that all is now in the past, but, but very dramatic. Uh, yeah, I like talking about my chaotic notion of time because it seems to me the the scientific data that is arising week by week is supporting m my originally somewhat far-fetched contention that the, w the universe is getting weirder and weirder and weirder at an extraordinarily asymptotic rate. I mean, just two examples in the last six weeks, both bizarre. Uh, this ice drilling project in Greenland has brought up a 325,000-year continuous record of snowfall. And because of the decay of isotopic oxygen, uh, there's some mumbo-jumbo by which you can determine the temperature of the air at the time the snow fell. So what they're getting is a continuous temperature record over 375,000 years. And uh, they can hardly believe what it's telling them. It's telling them that uh, the climate, the weather has been nuts for tens of millennia. That there are five-year periods where the world temperature fell 20 degrees and remained there for 70 years and then bounced back. Uh, a picture of completely chaotic climatological fluctuation has emerged just in the last two months. I mean, they're holding congresses and uh, flying people in and drilling a second core to try to understand this because it's always been thought that the, the planet's climates were fairly stable 
except that the human factor was capable of perturbing it. Now it looks like these glaciations are merely m macro physical reflections of micro reflections in the climate that are extremely dramatic. So that's one piece of data that's arrived in the last six weeks, uh, arguing that the universe is a strange and chaotic place on an accelerated uh, trajectory toward novelty. The other is much more peculiar, and in fact, it's at a level in the scientific literature where nobody has, panic has not quite broken out, but are, are you all aware of this very large object which has entered orbit around the planet Jupiter and which has broken up into between 17 and 25 objects? This is not coming to you from the Fortean times and uh, you know, the star. This is astronomy, sky and telescope. Uh, this, it's apparently a cometary body, that, but it's very large, and it has broken up and gone into Jovian orbit, but the orbit is decaying rapidly, and the, the whole situation is explicit enough that they can say with reasonable certainty that next July 22nd, these objects are going to uh, encounter the Jovian surface with a greater release of kinetic energy than the extinction which wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. The impact as presently calculated will occur on the side of the planet turned away from the earth S but within six hours that side will swing into view of terrestrial telescopes they the amount of energy released in the impact it will be possible to calculate it by studying the reflected flash off the Jovian satellites so, you know, what we're talking about here is, in the words of Astronomy magazine, a once in a hundred million year event. But that's the clue that something weird is going on. Once in a hundred million year events don't happen in the lifetime of a single human being. I mean, what are the odds? of that, and we also had Marilyn Monroe, the Kennedy assassination, the landing on the moon. I mean, you know, we, how, how many once in a hundred million year events can you cram into a single uh, lifetime? Well, uh, I, don't, I don't know what this thing going on out at Jupiter is about, but it's, it, it's bizarre. Uh, it's bizarre that in science now, uh, things like uh, chaos theory and, uh, and uh, nonlinear dynamical systems and these kinds of things, these intellectual tools arrive just as the assumed stability of reality established by Newtonian gentlemen in powdered wigs working through their brass instruments, that all flies apart. And there's just, you know, the heaving oceans of the spaghetti of ambiguity as <laughs> string theory and non-localization stretches you from here to Zenebel Ganubi and back again. Uh, the feedback between the perceiver and the object perceived is tightening. I don't know if this is a psychedelic theme. It's the theme of my psychedelic uh, explorations. I think of... Uh, of the, the shamanic model as inherited from classical Aboriginal shamanism worldwide, which is a model of levels that the universe is somehow made of, of distinct levels, energetic, geographic, however, and, but that there is an access, an elevator, that allows you to move from level to level. And this is usually some extraordinary technique of physical stress production, or in the hipper societies, uh, a pharmacological intervention of some sort. And the information 
um, is deployed differently on each level. They're like uh, uh, defined point, uh, perspectives on the stuff of being, you know, the raw perceptual input of experience. And I really think that, um, I, you know, you can't quite wrap language around it, but it has something to do with the fact that we're physical creatures at all, uh, that the mind at its deepest organizational level reflects the geometric principles of the organization of space and time. So the mind as present in us at this moment has been folded and sculpted and shaped into a tool for threat detection in three-dimensional space because the body is a fragile thing, borne along upon the vicissitudes of matter. But when you take a psychedelic or when you perturb ordinary brain chemistry by any means, illness, high fever, lightning strike, hunger, prolonged drumming, uh, grief, you know, all of these ways, then uh, there is a transition of level, or what Merciliad in this wonderful phrase called the rupture of plane, the rupture of the mundane plane. Isn't that a great, uh, uh, you'd almost swore you'd have to smoke DMT to get together a phrase like the rupture of the mundane plane. Well, uh, but then the, the organization of the information on these different planes has hitherto been largely thought to be somewhat um, expressionistic or haphazard, a la uh, the Jungian maps of the unconscious or something like that. I think that there is actually more to be gained by making a strict mathematical model and saying that the shaman is a person who penetrates to a literal informational hyperspace of some sort and to take it literally in terms of a geometric explanation. Because think about it for a minute. Shamans are primarily, in, in their aboriginal setting, they function in, in three roles. They predict weather. Weather prediction is very important in shamanic cultures. They tell where game has gone. In other words, they, they monitor the food source of the group and direct the hunting and gathering activities according to the availability of the, of the, of the uh, food. And then thirdly, they cure disease. And this is very important, and they are incredibly adept at choosing patients who will recover. This would be a cynical way of putting it. You know, they are very adept at choosing patients who make r miraculous recoveries. Some of you may know the, the tape recordings of Maria Sabina's Mushroom Velada made by Wasson, where an 11-year-old child is brought to her, and she says that she won't shamanize for this case, that this kid is not going to make it. And then he doesn't make it. He dies within three weeks. Well, uh, if, you're a, if you're a materialist and, uh, of the modern stripe, then the only way you can deal with this testimony about shamanism, about the precognitive knowledge of weather and game movement and the miraculous ability to cure, is to deny it to deny it and say this is some kind of sight of hand or they are very closely observant of nature and they, you know, in other words, some only this argument uh, that, that denigrates the thing. But I think that when you actually look at the ethnographic data from all parts of the world collected in the field by people who spent time with the Asande and the Kikuyu and the Witoto and the, you know, so forth, the Kyrgyz and so on, the body of testimony of what we would call paranormal phenomenon 
is sufficiently impressive that uh, another model has to be called into play. And I think it's that there are ways to push the mind by extraordinary uh, pharmacological uh, encounters or stress into a kind of higher dimensional space. Uh, this would be sort of like the idea that the indeterminacy that adheres to matter at the quantum mechanical level, the fact that it is displays itself as particle or wave, depending on the questions being asked, that that fundamental indeterminacy apparently has to be amplified through every level of nature, including the human level. So that when you get to ourselves, the mystery of ourselves is the particulate, finite, and dissolving body, and the intuition of the unseen, wave-like, infinite uh, spirit, the indwelling entelechy that creates the cohesion of the nexus of actual occasions that is the coordinated prehension of an organic system, right? <laughs> 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 we'll just stop there. Uh, <laughs> yes. Let me see if I, I'm getting this right. <laughs> Somehow, I'm getting the image that of you mathematically um, decoding uh, a, a the, the language of the gods, in a way. Well, except it isn't exactly a language. It's more like a point of view. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what I'm suggesting here is that the, the magic, if that's the word, the, or the, the grandiosity, the, the power of ecstatic exhalation that resides in the psychedelic is because it is literally a change of dimensional perspective. And, and you know, it, well, let's see, I hope this isn't too obscure an example, but uh, in the 14th century Petrarch, climbed a mountain somewhere in Italy and, and wrote a passage about it and invented the observation of landscape and nature in this single work of art because people had never done that before. It was a new, an entirely new thing to climb a mountain and look at nature and feel the unity and the grandiosity of it and write about it. And it was part of Renaissance humanism. It was part of getting people out of those dreary, urine stenchy cathedrals that they'd been hanging out in for far too long. So uh, um, what I'm suggesting is that, in a sense, the shaman is someone who climbs an, an inner mountain, but a real mountain, a geometric mountain, and then has a higher perspective, that it's a shift of awareness. I mean, we all are body and soul spirit, but to the degree that we concentrate on one, we occlude the other. I don't really like the sound of that because it sounds like you could turn that into some kind of asceticism, which in principle I'm against. But I think the key is paying attention to mental life uh, without bias. One of the things I've been talking to the staff here, because I'm scholar in residence, is Finnegan's Wake. And we've been taking it apart and looking at it and n noticing that part of the genius of Joyce in the way the wake is composed is that all terms are transparent. You know, every, every word, you can see through it to other words, to other associations, to other connections. So nothing is explicit and overt and defined. It's a mental universe, not uh, you see, the novel can take two directions. It can try to create w what's called realism, 
which is in a sense an attempt to duplicate the laws of optics on the printed page in narrative so that you have, you know, Lord and Lady so-and-so moving about their country home uh, with the crisis of daughter and servants or whatever. Uh, and, but then that's not the world those people are living in. That's the world you would see if you were a camera watching them. The world they're living in is uh, a much less crystalline and temporally defined world. It's a world where memory and anticipation are in a diasystolic relationship as the attention of the characters ebbs and flows. That's why Proust and Joyce, who are so different, can be seen to be essentially about the same thing. A true rendering of experience is very hard. I mean, this is the great challenge uh, I think that's why, you know, somebody asked me recently what was I doing with myself or where was I going? Um, and it seems to me that once you work your way into all of these places, the real test of your psychedelic authenticity is the ability to write a novel. Because what you have to show to yourself, not necessarily to anyone else, but what you have to show to yourself is that you can put yourself into uh, the mother giving birth, the fascist interrogating a prisoner, the, the child at play, the gangster plotting the advance of his career. In other words, that the human experience is open to you, that you know what it's like hooker and priest, saint and sinner, it's all accessible to you. That's the sign to me that a person has really dissolved their boundaries and done their inner work because the quintessence of understanding is the ability to occupy other people's points of view. I certainly make no claims in this area. In fact, I'm very weak in, in this area. I learned a long time ago by watching how I play chess that my emotional immaturity is right on the surface because the way I play chess is I make brilliant plans and then I, I attempt to carry them out as though there was me and nobody else there. <laughs> And, and meanwhile, coming at me across the board is this bewildering series of interruptions <laughs> which throw off the plan and, uh, yes. My question has to do with one of the topics of the, of the weekend, which is um, ethos versus politics and this kind of inner versus outer, but also Psychedelics are a way of experiencing other planes of reality or, or reality in a different way. But it seems as if you're also talking about a way of using that that requires some, I don't know whether it's an interdiscipline or how do you, how you um, use it so it's not just a distraction, a drug. Well, I think the, the simple answer to how do you do it without trivializing it is that you do doses that scare you, you know? I mean, these things are not uh, physically dangerous, uh, and, and, the, and yet the, they are terrifying at what are pharmacologically completely harmless doses. I mean, the LD50 for psilocybin is uh, hundreds of milligrams per kilogram. And yet, if you take anywhere above 25 milligrams of psilocybin, I think the, the, the strongest wayfaring soul reaches for the brake pedal somewhere in there. Uh, it, it's amazing how we just skim the surface of this. I mean, those and, and we can't go very deep because language fails. I mean, 
most of you who have done committed doses know that you go into a realm where it gets weirder and weirder and weirder and then finally the very machinery of explaining to the observer what is happening begins to melt <laughs> and and then you are there with it for a while and then you descend out of that and the language mechanism reactivates and says you know we are now leaving the utterly unspeakable <laughs> behind <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the motivation of, of, t of my career, I guess, is I just can't believe how this much strangeness could lay that close to the surface and the enterprise of human history be conducted for 10,000 years with people running around trying to do weird things, writing polyphonic music and, you know, the Rudolphine Court and Hieronymus Bosch and all this stuff, and right under the surface, uh, just a, a Niagara of peculiarity and strangeness that, that makes no sense to me when I put on the hat of the biologist. You know, why should a, an advanced animal of some sort, have this curious relationship to an invisible river of imagery running collectively through the brains of all and each. What, what is that about? And the beauty of it, the, uh, the, as in Blake's word, the futurity of it, the fact that in the glistening of the flowing waters of the unconscious, you glimpse not only the square-topped towers of Ilium and the ruins of Carthage and Petra and all that, but you also see uh, the intimations of some kind of magnificent future that, you know, is it in the imagination? Is it directly ahead in the time stream? Is it lost in dream? The whole circumstance of being alive and being a self-reflecting, thinking human being is just too peculiar for words. Yeah. yeah. So did you say that as far as the terror of this goes and what makes people hit the off button, push, 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 push the brakes to the, to the floorboard, is that uh, in something you were saying last night about lost continents, it seems like the psychedelic experience isn't new in the sense of a cultural endeavor. Uh, let's call that the discovery of the unconscious. <clears throat> and that Freud, you know, attributed that to the Romantic poets. So, I would you say that one could see the whole modern and postmodern era of this progressive discovery of this lost continent, the unconscious, psychoanalysis? the analysis of the unconscious uh, brings to light hidden aspects of, of truth of people's lives or their collective lives that no one wanted to face, but these things have been layered in the unconscious. So it's a process of bringing things to light, or as Carl Jung said, the, this enlightenment does not consist of visualizing figures of light, but making the dark unconscious. Could you say that? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question. If you're saying how derivative of, of I mean, I basically agree with the premise. I would just uh, uh, push the thing further back into time. I think where this all, you know, I mean, it's fun to try and find various breakpoints. I mean, was it Tim Leary? Was it Alfred Jarry? Was it L'Entremont? Was it uh, uh, the French symbolists, uh, uh, or uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think that uh, the what's popularly called the age of the marvelous indicates the real descent of the Western mind toward the psychedelic confrontation. When we look at the time wave tonight, maybe we'll get around to talking about this. But around, uh, basically with the invention of printing in 1440, I now see books 
as uh, obviously a psychedelic drug of enormous power. The early books were uh, manufactured uh, with chains on them so that they could be bolted to tables so that addicts uh, would not tear them loose and take them home. And the, the invention of printing and the uh, seizure of Constantinople by the Ottoman Turk set off an age of uh, scientific advancement, exploration, so forth and so on, that led to the discovery of the New World only 500 years ago. And this had the impact on Europe that flying saucers on the White House lawn would have on us. I mean, it was an alien planet that had been discovered with trackless jungles and temperate forests and people clad in gold practicing strange religions and enormous trading. I mean, it was an alien civilization. And at the same time, uh, the grip of the medieval church was breaking down and uh, people had a fascination with the bizarre, with the uh, phantasmagoria of natural existence. They were bringing back birds of paradise from Bougainville. They were bringing back uh, carved Incan and Mayan material, codices, all of this stuff. This is the period shortly then into it of the great flowering of European <laughs> magic, the establishment of the Rudolphine court in Prague and all of that. Uh, it was the age of the Wunderkammer, the wonder cabinet, where you collected together stuffed birds, ammonites, Gnostic gems, bits of archaic detritus, large insects, narwhal horns, all of this stuff. You know, it was pre-Linnaean. It was uh, before the categorical mind had stepped in and the whole thing was just a maelstrom of uh, individuated uh, data collections. And I think that's where the, 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 the psychedelic thing in, in the West became explicit, yeah. Uh, back to this man's question about that actual uh, the, the taking of a, a psychedelic, uh, I think it's real important that it be done with intent mm. and, and, and to kind of ask for or put it out there, whatever it is that you need or want. Yes, you, you have to talk to these things. You do it on an empty stomach, in silent darkness, in a situation where you feel secure, which can mean in your apartment with the phones unplugged and the door locked, or you know, off in some jungle or somewhere. But it's very important, empty stomach, silent darkness, and intent, as you say, and then not reckless dose, but committed dose, you know, not to see if it works. It works. Other people have established that. You don't need to do research to confirm that it's psychoactive. You just, you know, do it. And, uh, and then, you know, there, there are techniques for navigating through there. The, the best is a pure heart. But since we can't always come up with that, uh, uh, you know, sweating blood also helps. Uh, uh, and, and in terms of actual physical techniques, uh, singing. This is what I learned in the Amazon, that, you know, you don't always have enough presence of mind to breathe. But if you will sing, the breathing will take care of itself. And... Uh, uh, the body is an instrument. I mean, the yogins, they got that right. The body is an instrument for tuning through these dimensions. I don't know what it all confirms. Like, I don't rush to embrace any particular esoteric school. In fact, I'm fairly scornful of all of that because I see how it's used to promote 
priestly hierarchy and uh, mumbo-jumbo and that sort of thing. Uh, but certainly science doesn't have the whole story. I mean, the human body is an incredible esoteric instrument. It's just that I think be, you need to self-teach yourself. I had a shaman tell me once in the Amazon, he said, uh, you know, it's not easy for us to do this. It's no easier for us to do this than for you to do it. And I, I imagine giving shamans pure DMT and stuff like that and watching them go through it, that, you know, they're macho, they do it, but they, they're, they at the core are as sensible and afraid as anybody would be. You, everybody comes down to a local language structure and a local c set of cultural myths. And the shaman's job is to be uh, outside, behind, and under that. He's sort of an archetypal plumber. And uh, he sees, he knows where the shit goes. He knows how to repair the system that everybody else uh, is invisible to everybody else. I, I think it's very challenging to do this stuff in any cultural context. One thing you find that you may not expect when you go to the Amazon is not all shamans have the great zest for going as deep as possible. There are a lot of shamans who, whose attitude is you get in, you do the work, and you get out fast, and you, keep, and you take only as much as you need to. Uh, yeah. Uh, there, it's only, you know, you're very fortunate if you meet a great exploring soul who wants to make it stronger and stronger and stronger. Let me ask another way. Is, do you, is your contention that at levels of, of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> chemical dosage that are sufficient for you to meet your, your little green elves, is that world of language? <laughs> So to speak. <laughs> At that level of your language with, the, with that world, is it the same level of language that an uninformed person, I've been informed, informed in all the material things, the historical things that we're talking about, that, uh, from the, that a shaman who started off in the, in the hinterlands of, of somewhere would meet, is it that same world? So if it is, then it's completely unfettered by the knowledge that you've amassed of history? Well, this is a very, very difficult question to answer because it requires somehow the, uh, the apprehension of someone else's mind in contact with a very subtle matter. With DMT, for instance, I have a certain experience. Well, then if I give it to other people and interview them, then I'm trying to understand their experience and my own in some kind of general context. And what I get is uh, an, an archetype of some sort. In the case of DMT, the archetype of the circus and nighttime theatrical performances or something like that. So, you know, the, it's a question. I mean, which is more important to the content of your psychedelic experience? The books you've read in your life or your genetic heritage? Right. That kind of thing. Teasing this apart, the only way we'll ever know, and this is why I tend to encourage and hang out with the technical crowd on one level, uh, virtual reality is a technology that might allow you to show somebody the inside of your head. And if I could, you know, spend six months building a virtual reality which was my DMT trip, then escort someone into it and show it, and then they would say, that's exactly what happens to me. Or they would say, you know, that was the damnedest thing. I mean, I, nowhere does that come tangential to anything familiar <laughs> to me. Well, then this would be wonderful. In either case, you would either have confirmation of a generally recognized reality or a breakthrough to an immense domain of potential creativity where every individual 
could create their own equally personally compelling metaphysical joyride of some sort. Uh, it's the, I mean, I think, you know, on one level, what we're doing here is something that's never been done before in Western society that I'm particularly aware of, which is we are talking about the psychedelic experience. This is the first step toward understanding it. I guess the first step is having it. The first step is having it. But then so many people have had it who don't attempt to English it. And it's quite respectable to do that. I mean, too much has been made of the indescribability of it. I mean, it's fine to say that, but then decency demands that you go forward and describe it. You're pushing there against the envelope of language. The culture cannot evolve faster than the language. The language is the flashlight that shows the path. And so if we don't talk about something, race, homosexuality, drug experiences, then, then no cultural progress takes place on that front. It's like it just doesn't exist. So part of what we're trying to do here is to create a dialogue that is not necessarily politically confrontational. Too much of the public dialogue about drugs is all about whether they should be legalized or not. I mean, you can take care of that in one sentence. Yes, they should, and they won't be. So now let's move on with that. Uh, but experience, this is probably the richest domain of experience that we have. I mean, you may go on your vacation to Benares, and I may go to Argentina, and we will get back and talk about the restaurants, national parks, and museums that we visited, but far more interesting conversation could take place if I do psilocybin and you do mescaline, and then we get together and talk about the places we have seen. In other words, this psychedelic universe, whatever it is, is the major datum of experience. It's larger than this planet. Nobody knows how large it is. Uh, you know, the further in you go, the bigger it gets. We don't know what to make of something like that. That's the reverse of our expectations. Yes? You seem to use sound a lot as like a key issue. Like you were mentioning in South America, you uh, sang songs. Were those songs um, like ayahuasca songs or Inca songs or, or little ditties you were doing in your own self? They were, in some cases, ayahuasca songs that, that Don Fidel taught. And, and in some cases, just taking ayahuasca, I learned, and to call them songs, but you know, one of the things that's so interesting about ayahuasca is that it promotes a synesthesia that's very dramatic. You seek sound, and uh, when you make it, you have an experience which is beyond English by several leaps. The, the, the experience of, of generating colors out of a vibration so that you go, you know, mm, and a chartreuse line like a neon light descends and hangs there. And then you can, you can move it off and it goes from chartreuse to lemon yellow. And then you just begin playing with this and within 30 seconds you're doing something that it seems to you only intelligent insects on other planets <laughs> do. And Is this true for everyone you know who's who you've talked to about ayahuasca? I think if you can come through, yeah, I mean, you have to sort of get your wits about you because ayahuasca sweeps over you, there's stomach stuff, there's waves of hallucination. But once you sort of get your sea legs, uh, you can do this. It's very clear when you're with these shamans that these performances are pictorial. And, and you know, um, the, uh, originally the active principle of Banisteriopsis capi was called telepathine when Theodor Hoch Grünberg and those people went in there in the early years of the 19th century, they collected samples, took it back to Berlin, 
and characterized it, called it telepathine, and then it was later realized that the compound had been earlier isolated from pagamon harmala and called harmaline, and the rules of chemical nomenclature give the early discovery precedent. But it was, it was called harmaline because, I mean, it was called telepathine because the tribal groups using it seemed to have this extraordinary group-mindedness. Telepathy of a sort we didn't conceive of seems to lie very close to the surface in these states. When I, I think most people think of telepathy as you hear what I think, that's telepathy. That, that is not what psychedelic telepathy is. Psychedelic telepathy is you see what I mean. You see what I mean. And uh, there is a way to use voice and inflection and tonality to edge people's uh, transduction of the language experience out of the audio, out of the ear mode, and into the, uh, into the visual mode. This is uh, something which is neurologically very fragile in us. It's as though the land is very flat and the river flows one way through the audio processing channel of the neocortex, but just a very slight shift of the inner stratigraphy and the river would flow another way. It would flow into the visual cortex and language would become a thing beheld. One of the things that's so interesting about ayahuasca is that it contains DMT and harmaline and these are both brain neurotransmitters occurring in normal metabolism, suggesting that, you know, there is simply a, a one or two gene mutation or the intensity of the expression of a gene already present that would switch brain chemistry toward visual processing. Meanwhile, in the culture, simultaneously, there is this tendency going on. The culture is becoming more and more imagistic. You know, the invention of photography, high-speed color printing, film, we see uh, and we relate through the image much more. So I think psychedelics and media uh, and the predisposition of the neural landscape is setting us up for a kind of ontological transformation of the project of communication, yes. As you're saying this, I'm observing the way that I'm listening to you, and I'm, I'm seeing what you mean. Mm -hmm. Because through the, your language, like when you say neurological, I see a picture, it goes really fast, but I'm seeing what, you're, what you mean. I'm not, that's how I'm comprehending you. It's, yes, well, you're embarrassing me by turning the the magnifying glass upon the current project of communication, but that's the name of the game. Yes, I mean one reason people have some people have criticized me because I use big words, but I've always had the feeling that if you use big words right your listener understands perfectly what you mean. But, and I don't know how that works exactly, or it may just be an illusion of mine, but it's a very satisfying one. <laughs> it seems like, in a way, you're working with sound and, and you've got in touch with uh, that sound on different levels, but you express it in a conscious communication, which anyone's consciousness is somewhat alive it becomes more conscious. Uh, they hear communication or understanding that it all clicks right. Well, I think people, uh, you know, language is a behavior. It was acquired 50,000 or 100,000 years ago, and I think people don't use it enough. 90% uh, of spoken communication is trivial. And it's very interesting to try and use 
the 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 descriptive blade of voice. It's like Manjushri. It's the sword of discriminating wisdom. Communication is about discrimination. It's about finely uh, uh, delineating difference. And and with this sword of discriminating wisdom, you make your way into the world. And you know, granted, it's an image of penetration and cleavage and so forth and so on. But what you're left with then is the cognitive enterprise. Yeah, Jim. After all these years, what is it these days that would make you want to hit the brakes? <laughs> Out in the state, you mean? Well, it does this thing on me occasionally. Uh, which I call going all Halloweenish, <laughs> where um, and and I just and I say, you know, why are you doing this to me? Uh, it's it's uh, it's scary. It's probably just my own inner demons. Uh, I ride this stuff through, uh, but I always feel like. Uh, you should never take the sea for granted. And the metaphor we're dealing with here is the sailing of small ships over great and turbulent depths. And, uh, and I've also noticed, you know, my God, if, a, if an iota of pride lodges in your character, it can rub your face in it like you just don't want to know from. And uh, so uh, I respect it. I fear it. It's, and the strangeness of it. Uh, somebody near and dear to me, I won't name them, but just recently described taking ayahuasca and uh, the, the dose was somewhat low. So after a couple of hours, they smoked some DMT on top of it. And uh, with your MAO inhibited like that, this is a pretty hairy-chested thing to undertake. Don't try this at home, folks. Uh, with, your, with your MAO inhibited like that, <clears throat> it just settled in. And he said, you know, it is strange. I mean, when you get the trim, you know, when you get the tabs trimmed and you get the focus right and you can just look at it, you know, it, he said, it just says, you know, behold, if you can, O oh mortal, the essence of Tregyogmanalamaglacht. And you're just saying, oh my God. <clears throat> you know, once it, because it, it is clear that it presents itself through a series of veils. And, and it's so, it's so kind to first-timers and second-timers, you know? It's like a series of Disney-esque images. And, but God, once you're into it, it begins to part the veil, and you realize, you know, that the human mind is just like the mind of a gnat falling into the sun of peculiarity. <laughs> and you say, you know, how did, I mean, you know. <clears throat> and then you come back and try and talk about it, yeah. <laughs>